the Forefront Express, where you'll be able to get exclusive scents of oil-based fragrances available to men and women. Join us at our website. Join our website on www.thefourfrontexpress.com. Bible. To whom pertain it? To, to whom pertain it? Bring it out. Belongs to the adoption uh-huh. and the glory and the, glory. And the covenant. Look, why you waiting? They bring gone like decapitation. No knowledge, no laws. God, they forsaken. Put on slave ships, not a cruise line. Jacob, no martinis for that long trip. Stop playing. They change our name with hot flames branded on our faces. Our kids in dirty water, alligator baiting. Hundred million dead people, blood on the pavement. You say Jesus, but I'm looking at these crackers like they Satan, like they Satan. Nigga playing, nigga playing. They paying for their crimes, calling statute limitations. Saying that it ain't them, that it was their fathers. Isaiah 14 say prepare them for the slaughter. This for Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner. Babylon falling, fire burning, arson. Christ coming back, real black like the charcoal. Burning up these heathen for the evils that they conjured. For us, our eyes have yet filled, for our vain help. In our watching, we have watched for a nation they couldn't save us. They slay us and get all free like they made us. But it's just the game up, the black messiah. Look, I ain't finished. Esau soon will be diminished. Mount of Zion full of savers, call of God's children. 144, Esau about to be a victim. Keep the laws, then we get them on the day of vengeance. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Esau running for their life like it's LA Fitness. Revelation 18.6, double portion with them. Try to hide the caves, and let's get them. He that leader with the sword, gonna die by the sword. They gonna be surprised, black Christ coming here for war. They ain't heard this before. No more nice Negroes, time for real heroes. Esau be zero, just like Nat Turner. Turn me up, we gone. Turn me up, we gone. And I'm out, it's real light. Now he's mad about the way we're teaching the bus. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. For us, our eyes have yet filled, for our vain help. In our watching, we have watched for a nation they couldn't save us. They slay us and get all free like they made us. But it's with the game up, the black Messiah can save Never us. trust my enemies, I know what you did to me. Locked in, though, the KJV, Revelations 1 and 3. Reading through these mysteries, all praises, now we got the keys. Unlocking hope and giving hope to those that seek the Holy Ghost. My holy folks. Don't hold me down, exhorting on a daily basis Prepare for temptation, crappy counsel just around the way Snooze, you lose, you lose, you snooze awake You know you slugger, I see brothers killing brothers Ministers, women raising monsters, that's why we Crying loud on you busters Scripping, ripping through the trenches in the seas of the ghetto My people had a lower state, the prophets here to motivate Isaiah 61 and 1, grinding up these broken hearts Reforming today, mate Moses and Christ, they gave the law and grace to keep you from sinning so hard. The things before were written afore, time that we could learn through all. Patience and comfort, we have the scripts to keep you alive away from sin. But we rebelled, now suffering, and slavery is the price we get.
Our women, our children, taken on ships, murdered by enemies, chains and whips. They changed our name from fame to shame. Hebrew to English, the Spanish came. The Nina, the Pinta, the Pilgrims came. Slaughtered our people, Indian names. Gave us religion from cradle to grave. Stuck in idolatry, Caesar Bourget. Babel to Babel is Babylon. America singing the same old song. Put us in chains, then say we're free. Destroy our minds through slavery. The curses endure to run of me. The Bible is just our history. The truth someday will set you free. My people, you have to set your mind free. My people caught up in drama. They want to talk about commas, but we ain't got dollars. They took away our kings, then they gave us Donald. Let's talk about problems, cause we got problems. Look, this is something you should know. We've been brought down very low. They don't want you to know. Shame on thee, shame on thee, shame on thee. How could you all forget about slavery? I can't forget what they did to me. So let's talk about slavery. How could you all forget about slavery? We gon' talk about how slavery chains on my neck and on my mind. Have you ever seen a grown man cry? How can you? How can you forget? You ask me, God, it was right. Supposed to be slaves, we ain't put up a fight. Still thinking these nations gonna help us get right. But we fooling ourselves, still searching for light. Watching for this nation, they can't help. These bills ain't going to pay themselves. Pray to God that He can save my soul. Spirit getting wiser, but my flesh getting old. Thanking God every day that I woke up awoke. Hypocritical religions won't wipe out the moat. Like the sun arose, swearing they repented, but they keep blowing smoke. Now it's out the time to stand or fall. America won't last long. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. These laws will turn you to a man. You know that we about it, cause we gon' keep on rising. I'ma always be a prophet while you sitting back watching. We gon' run it like an option, like a god. I'ma love it, and you know that you can stop it. It's real, we multiply in. Yo, tell these heathens stop lying. Uh, take it flat like a sparrow. Most high, sending off the arrow. Fine water, stay on the path, straight narrow. Time for the boy, unless I'm sipping red. Make sure I reverence the priest. These verses to your rescue, like Chip and Dell. See, my mind was in prison. Couldn't correlate with the lies and the killing. I wasted my time with the time I was given. I ain't trying to be left. I want to be delivered in the fire of the furnace. Never lukewarm, I let the fire keep burning. Kill the opponent like a matador, Lord. Help me turn the tides of the river. And toss my trials like a catapult. 
Too many caught and gone, too many falling short. Show them who we are, so we can't call you more. So they can't cry anymore. Praise you the Lord, everyone praise you the Lord. Everyone all in accord if you're ready for war. Every man gird up your swords, every man gird up your lawns, they're pressing up war. Who gon' stand for the Lord? Who gon' fight for the Lord? Ain't running anymore. Ain't running anymore. Sit with slavery. Chains on my neck and on my mind I can never see you grow and cry It's time you realize We can't forget slavery Chains on my neck and on my mind Have you ever seen a grow and cry? How could you Haiti paid France 21 1825, our people were still enslaved. 1804, our people were still enslaved here in America. The Lord God, redeem us. 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 Slavery, all these nations hating me. Slavery, all these nations hating me. For the coffee and they rice and they beans Sugar plantation and they cutting off my seams Wicked white man, French man chasing green Supply the whole earth and they stole it from my dreams Words can't explain all these atrocities But we fit the curse and do the rhyme to me The Bible talks about a hidden and lost sheep Scattered across the earth and scattered across the seas Put on slave ships and sold into enemies Look up a history book, it's talking about me we the chosen ones, the Bible is history This the mystery that's hidden in prophecy Right in the book they told us not to read Truth coming out, the truth will set you free Don't forget your roots, you are the chosen seed Prophets coming nigh, the prophets is about to teach Holy righteous kings and holy and righteous priests Angels in the sky, they coming with Christ the King The Lord God Haiti was the first us. free black country Okay, us. go ahead Haiti paid France $21 billion to preserve its independence. So, Haiti freed themselves by way of insurrection, rebellion, as Esau calls it. I call it freedom fighter, right? And they charged them. They said, you freed yourself, but now you got to pay us. Slavery, all these nations hating me. Slavery, all these nations hating me. Just like Noah cry aloud, this right here is going down. But no water's coming down, flaming fire burning down. Hated of all nations, the saints patiently waiting. The synagogue of Satan was paying for all the slave ships. Better get up out my face with you, racist bastards, amazing. Columbus discovered Nathan, placed us in plantations, castrated and degraded, forced us to worship Satan. We ain't taking it no more. Machetes up in the basement. Spirit of Dessaline, spirit of Dutty Bookman, spirit of Levi, revolution. Yeah, we get them. 80s chronic status as the Western Hemisphere's poorest nation is due to a litany of afflictions that range from widespread illiteracy to endemic corruption to woefully inadequate infrastructure. All caused by the French. Okay, go ahead. But while these would be hard enough for any country to overcome for more than a century of its existence, 
Haiti carried an additional but little known millstone, the effects of which are still being felt. In 1825, barely two decades after winning its independence against all odds, Haiti was forced to begin paying enormous reparations. That is madness. They was forced to pay reparations for their own freedom. That's crazy. Go ahead. To the French slaveholders it had overthrown. Mm -hmm. Those payments would have been a staggering burden for any fledgling nation. But Haiti wasn't just any fledgling nation. It was a republic formed and led by blacks who'd risen up against the institution of slavery. As such, Haiti's independence was viewed as a threat by all slave-owning countries. Yeah. You are now listening to The Forefront Radio, where we discuss history, the Bible, the history of the Israelites, science, and other matters. Bring it out. The history of the blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans as it relates to the Bible. Who were you prior to slavery? Who were you prior to colonization? These answers and more can be seen and heard as you listen to The Forefront Radio. Uh, hello and welcome. My name is Andrew Barnes. Uh, I teach in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies, and I have the uh, honor of introducing our speaker today, uh, uh, Professor Leslie Alexander, who is uh, the 2019 a Visiting Distinguished Scholar uh, in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. And she will be speaking on the topic of fear of a black republic, U.S.-Haitian relations in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution. But I would like to give you a brief introduction to her before that. Right. Uh, Professor Alexander received her B.A. Uh, with honors in history from Stanford University. And then she went on to get a master's degree and a Ph.D. from Cornell University. She had, uh, at present, she is an associate professor of history at Oregon uh, University of Oregon. Hopefully, they will lose uh, in a couple of days. Uh, and <laughs> just, just, just felt the need to say that. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, she is presently at, at Oregon. Uh, previously, she was associate professor in the Department of African American and African Studies at The Ohio State University. And then previously there, she was in the history department at Ohio State University. Her first book came out in, in 2008. Uh, it was entitled African or, or American, Black Identity and Political Activism in New York City, 1784 to 1861. All right, and this book won the uh, National Council for Black Studies Award for Outstanding Scholarship in the Field of Afri Africana Studies. Uh, okay, uh, she is uh, co-editor of uh, of the uh, forthcoming volume uh, expanding the boundaries of Black intellectual history. She is co-editor also of the Encyclopedia. Of Encyclopedia of African American History. She is a co-editor, finally, of We Shall, we Shall Independent Be, African American Placemaking and the Struggle to Claim Space in the United States. 
Uh, she is presently the head of the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora, or OSWAD. She is on the editorial board to the Journal of African American History, uh, the Journal of International Africana Studies, and the National Council for, Blacks, uh, for Black Studies, and as well as, as uh, the advisory board for the journal The, the Black Scholar. Her present project is a study of uh, the Cradle of Hope, or a study entitled The Cradle of Hope, African Americans, Haitian Sovereignty, and the Birth of Black and Internationalism. And she will be speaking today uh, on a related topic that is Fear of a Black Republic, U.S.-Haitian Relations in the Aftermath of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Alexander. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for um, coming out, and thank you so much for that uh, wonderful introduction. Um, I know that I, looking around the room and chatting with folks, I have a sense that there's probably going to be lots of lively discussion um, about this topic. And um, so I'm actually just going to go ahead and jump right in. And at a few points, I might just kind of quickly summarize a few points so that we can try to get to the, the question and answer as quickly as possible. So in less than two months, on January 12th, 2020, we will honor the 10-year anniversary of a catastrophic earthquake that destroyed the, that struck the island nation of Haiti, devastating large portions of the country and killing nearly 300,000 people. The following day, as hundreds of thousands of the dead and dying lay beneath the rubble and remains of their homes and communities, televangelist Pat Robertson stated that the earthquake occurred because Haiti and its people are cursed. The curse, he claimed, was the result of a centuries-old deal that the Haitian people had made with the devil to get their freedom from the French. At the same time, the American media kicked into overdrive, incessantly repeating the mantra, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, until it started to sound more like a chant of accusation than a statement of fact. What none of the pundits and commentators seemed willing to explore was the deeper question of why Haiti had become a poverty-stricken nation in the first place. Instead, scholars and media talking heads alike argued that a range of ills, apparently specific to the island nation, from the prevalence of voodoo, to a fundamental pathology, as they described it, among the Haitian people, explained Haiti's current plight. Now, in fairness to some of Haiti's detractors, I admit that it is nearly impossible to escape or ignore the crushing poverty and political instability that plagues the country. Even at this moment, Haiti's political destiny hangs in the balance as protesters seek to overthrow yet another corrupt president, placing their hope in another dubious presidential election cycle. Yet while Haiti has been mocked and demonized for its internal problems, few are willing to ask the hard questions about how and why Haiti perpetually appears to teeter on the brink of economic and political disaster. The reality is that Haiti's current circumstances are not the result of, the, of a pact with the devil, nor are they the result of voodoo, 
nor are they the result of a fundamental inability of black people to govern ourselves. The truth is far more insidious. In the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake, while the media was quick to chant about Haiti's poverty, they were eerily silent about the cause of the poverty. Nobody attempted to explain how Haiti went from being what was called the Pearl of the Antilles and the New World's most profitable colony in the 18th century to being the most despised, hated, and persecuted nation on earth in the 20th century. So how did that happen? The truth, as I said, is far more insidious. The painful truth is that from the birth of Haitian independence in 1804 until the present day, the United States and other Western European nations have used their economic and diplomatic strength to isolate and impoverish the island nation, often referred to as the Black Republic. This is the story that the mainstream media sought to ignore, and given the problematic history of US intervention in Haiti, only a few brave souls have been willing to tell the simple truth. As New York Times op-ed contributor Mark Danner explained, there is nothing mystical in Haiti's pain, no inescapable curse that haunts the land. From independence and before, Haiti's harms have been caused by men, not demons. So today, I want to highlight some important aspects of Haitian history that will hopefully help you to understand what really happened during Haiti's early existence and what Haiti's experiences have been ever since so that we can hopefully start to have a more honest discussion about Haiti's current plight and how we could move forward from here. So I'm gonna give you what I think is kind of a quick um, historical overview of the uh, diplomatic and economic relationship between the United States and Haiti, starting with Haiti's founding in 1804 and continuing through the early 21st century. Now, I'm going to be honest from the outset that the bulk of my talk is going to focus on the 19th century, and it is, of course, because I'm a 19th century historian. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but it's also because, in my view, it, you know, it's the events in the 19th century that really are what set the U.S. policies towards um, Haiti into motion. And so in my mind, we can't really understand, right, what's happening now um, without understanding that um, earlier context. But I'm going to be brave towards the tail end of the, of the talk and try to venture beyond what is normally my happy place, which is the Civil War, um, and try to talk a little bit about what's happened in the, um, in the 20th century and how it led to, to Haiti's current um, predicament. So I realize you know, there are some historians in the room, so a few of the things I'm going to talk about right at the beginning will be um, familiar to some of you, but I kind of want to get us all a little bit on the same um, page. So I want to talk very quickly first um, about the issue of how Haiti came to be an independent republic. So prior to the revolution, Haiti was known by the name Saint-Domingue, and it was a French colony that played a crucial role in trade between Europe, the Caribbean, and the Americas. Now, it's actually important to keep in mind that Saint-Domingue um, was and now is, as Haiti, relatively small. And um, to kind of give you a, a local reference point, um, Haiti is a, less than a tenth of the size of the state of Arizona. But despite its relatively small size, it's only just a little over 10,000 square miles. Saint-Domingue, um, during that period in the 18th century, was the wealthiest colony in the Caribbean. By 1789, the colony had attained a height of prosperity that remains unmatched in the history of the European colonies in the Americas. It contained over 8,000 plantations and provided France with two-fifths of its global trade profit on an annual basis. 
More importantly, and this is actually staggering to think about these terms again, given the size of the country, Saint-Domingue produced one half of all of the sugar and coffee that was consumed in Europe and the Americas um, during this time, as well as significant amounts of cotton and indigo. The size of the enslaved population was about a, a half a million, about 500,000, and the white population was only 40,000, and that's going to become important a little bit later in the story. Again, just for sort of purposes of comparison, the enslaved population in Saint-Domingue was the largest in the Caribbean, nearly twice the size of Jamaica, which had the next largest population in, in the Caribbean. Now, race relations, oh, sorry, this is just a, sort of another view to give you a, a sense of um, so, sort of some of the key areas um, in Haiti. And as we go on, we'll talk a little bit about um, Bonaive. Cape Haitian was one of the largest um, ports in the north. And of course, most of you are probably familiar with um, Port-au-Prince. Race relations in Saint-Domingue prior to the revolution um, were complicated because of the existence of a small class of free people of color, Jean de Colère, and of course those of you who are familiar with French know literally people of color, who occupied a middle position between the enslaved African population and the white planter class. And actually for a period of time before the revolution in some ways sort of operated as a social buffer right between um, those two populations that prevented um, sort of a full-scale racial conflict. Now certainly there had been regular resistance to slavery and in particular there were maroon communities um, located up in the mountains. Some of you may have seen um, a version of this image before. This is um, a photograph depicting a statue, um, as you can see in the background, right near the um, Capitol building in Port-au-Prince, um, a tribute to maroon communities. And this statue is called the Unknown um, Maroon, again, sort of a celebration of those who were brave enough to flee from slavery and try to establish um, independent communities. Leading up to the revolution, there were regular revolts, but most were put down fairly quickly, which then naturally leads us to the question of how the revolution um, began. Those of you who are familiar with the story of the Haitian Revolution know that it's a pretty long, complicated, and um, circuitous story. But just to kind of highlight um, a couple of key issues. Political conflict really first started to emerge in the late 1780s when the free black population, the Jean de Colère, begin to pressure the colonial government for their rights. These folks are really heavily inspired by the language of the uh, French and American revolutions that are calling for freedom, equality, brotherhood. Um, and so they're, they're drawing upon this language to push for their um, full rights to citizenship. So kind of in the midst of this um, growing tension between the Jean de Colère and the white planter class, a slave revolt erupts in August of 1791 under the leadership of a, an enslaved man um, named Buchmann. A highly inf influential figure in the enslaved community, Buchmann reputedly used the religion of Vodou to inspire his followers. Vodou, which is often mistakably referred to as voodoo, is essentially a blending of um, various African spiritual beliefs from different uh, West African societies with Catholicism. 
So it was apparently this use of African spirituality that caused Pat Robertson to describe the Haitian Revolution as a pact with the devil, because it was following one of Buchmann's spiritual ceremonies that the Haitian Revolution commenced. And of course, this painting and the image that I'm about to show you are um, kind of recreations, right? Depictions of um, one of Buchmann's ceremonies that, um, that led to the revolution. Again, following um, this, this particular um, ceremony uh, that took place not far um, outside of uh, Cape Haitian, enslaved Africans armed with machetes that had been used to cut sugarcane on local plantations began beating drums, chanting, and marched from plantation to plantation, killing, looting, and burning the cane fields. Rapidly expanding to 12,000 rebels, Buchmann's revolt quickly blossomed into the largest, bloodiest slave rebellion in history. Although Buchmann himself died early in the conflict, the rebellion persisted, and by the end of September, over a thousand plantations had been burned and hundreds of whites had been killed. Now, there, there is kind of then a critical turning point here where the Jean de, de Colaire decide they're going to join, <laughs> right, um, in the process. They're obviously frustrated by the continual denial of their rights, and so they join the rebels and the violence continues to spread. So after months of fighting and bloodshed, it becomes clear that the revolt is going to be impossible to control. So in December of 1791, troops are imported from France, and this again is an illustration sort of depicting um, the attempted arrival of, of French troops onto the um, shores of what was then still um, Saint-Domingue. And of course, there's significant clashing that takes place between um, the, the Haitian rebels and uh, the French troops. During the same time, famed leader Toussaint Louverture arose to power among the black rebels and created an organized army of over 20,000. And I'll just say as a side note, again, for those of you who are not as familiar um, with this topic, but who may perhaps be a little bit more familiar with the, the French language, for a long time, Toussaint's name was spelled with an apostrophe between the, the L and the O, um, but historians in recent years have discovered that's actually not how he spelled his name. And so there's sort of an effort to try to correct that, but you'll still see it um, spelled both ways. So in uh, 1793, Louverture gains control of the government and pressures French authorities to declare an end to slavery. But the country was not yet free. Over the next several years, with a climax in 1800, both the French and the Spanish attempted to reimpose European control and ensure that the system of slavery would continue. Although the rebels were eventually able to defeat Napoleon's army, they suffered major defeats early on, and in one of these conflicts in 1802, the French captured Toussaint, and he died in 1803 while in their custody. Um, and this is sort of the famous illustration that was circulated of um, Toussaint's death, in this case actually being attended by one of his um, sort of loyal servants and um, supporters who was um, imprisoned along with him. I actually recently read an article um, that I thought was interesting because it noted that um, in reality, one thing that was actually not captured in this illustration is that Toussaint was actually wearing like a, a red bandana um, on his head at the, <laughs> at the time of his death, which would have been sort of um, culturally, um, symbolically significant. 
So the point here is that the, what the French had hoped was that by capturing Toussaint, they would chop the head off the rebellion. But that obviously did not happen. What happened instead is that various members of the Jean de Colère, people like Henri Christophe, um, as well as Jean-Jacques Dessalines, rose in power to replace um, Toussaint. That leads ultimately to the uh, Battle of Vertier in um, 1803, which is kind of recognized as sort of the final epic battle between um, the Haitian rebels and um, the French. And in 1804, Haiti declares its independence, and Dessalines became the first ruler of Haiti. In a speech delivered in Gonaïve, Dessalines called upon his people to pledge themselves to liberty at any cost. And this is a, an excerpt from... Um, from the speech that, that he delivered. Let us swear before the whole universe to posterity to ourselves, to renounce France forever and to die rather than to live under its dominion, to fight until our last breath for the independence of our country. The Haitian act of independence forever altered the meanings and conceptions of liberty in the Atlantic world. Clearly, it was not the first declaration of independence in the Americas, but Haiti was, however, the first and only country in the Americas where enslaved Africans threw off their shackles, fought for freedom, defended European powers, established their own nation, and pledged themselves to defend their freedom and independence until their last breath. In so doing, they accomplished what one scholar has described as the unthinkable. They radically upended the basic premise of white supremacy upon which slavery rested and asserted black people's fundamental human right to liberty and self-governance. As Dessalines affirmed, the independence of San Domingo is proclaimed. We have proclaimed our rights. We swear never to yield them to any power on earth. The frightful veil of prejudice is torn to pieces and is so forever. This is my favorite part. Woe be, right? It's so 19th century. Woe be to whomsoever would dare again to put together its bloody tatters. Now, inherent in Dessalines' declaration was both a promise and a threat. Not only did he vow to expand the notion of liberty and natural rights to people of African descent, he also warned the enemies of black freedom that the Haitian people were prepared to defend their rights with deadly force. The Haitian act of independence then transformed global conceptions of liberty and challenged existing assumptions about who possessed human rights and who did not. Determined to protect Haitian freedom by any means necessary, shortly after his act of independence, Dessalines killed off or drove out all the remaining white colonists. For Dessalines, it was an act of justice, retribution, and protection against future French efforts to restore slavery. But for the French and most of the white Western nations, it became known as the horrors of San Domingo. And these are all um, sort of illustrations depicting um, Dessalines' raid um, driving the French colonists um, out of Saint-Domingue. The, uh, the, um, the little title at the bottom here is um, The Massacre of the Whites by the Blacks. <laughs> The Haitian Revolution has been referred to as the Vietnam of its day, the story of an underfunded, militarily inexperienced group of insurgents that managed to defeat one of the world's strongest powers. In essence, a group of former slaves defeated Napoleon's army, the army that had caused fear around the world and drove them out of Haiti. 
Now, this particular story is crucial for a number of reasons, but mostly because the events of the Haitian Revolution played a defining role in determining the trajectory of Haiti's destiny in the centuries that followed. While the Haitian Revolution was celebrated in some quarters, the epic tale of a successful slave rebellion that resulted in the establishment of the first sovereign black republic in the Western Hemisphere caused outrage around the world and ultimately caused Haiti to become one of the most hated and persecuted countries in history. And it is this dichotomy, the divide between those who celebrated Haiti and those who despised it, that I want us to think more deeply about today. So I'm going to talk very quickly first about the folks who celebrated it. Um, immediately after Haiti's Declaration of Independence in 1804, the newly formed Black Republic served as a beacon of hope to people of African descent around the world. Haitian independence was especially important to African Americans in the United States. In the US South and in the Caribbean, the influence of the Haitian Revolution was immediately felt in the form of rebellions. Martinique, Curaçao, Jamaica, Grenada, and many other colonies across the Americas went up in flames. In the United States, at least three revolts, Gabriel Prosser's rebellion, the 1811 um, uprising in Louisiana, and Denmark Vesey's conspiracy were all believed to be inspired by the Haitian Revolution. Although these uprisings were eventually suppressed, the successful Haitian Revolution remained symbolically significant as a model for armed resistance against slavery. But the Haitian Revolution was not only empowering for enslaved black, black people, legally free black people also found hope in it. So why was Haiti important to the free black uh, population in the northern United States? At the moment of Haitian independence, black northerners were in a precarious social and political situation, plagued by violence, racism, injustice, poverty, the denial of citizenship, and a tenuous social status. Many newly emancipated African Americans wondered if freedom was actually an illusion and grew increasingly doubtful about their future in the United States. And I actually want to underscore this point because I think in retrospect, we have a tendency to assume that black people always assumed they were going to stay in this country, right, and fight for abolition and for equality in this country. But the truth is, is that throughout the most, most of the 19th century, the question of whether black people should collectively leave or stay was actually a serious point of contention and debate um, within the black community. And Haiti, in particular, in their minds, represents the culmination of black political autonomy. In their view, the story of the Haitian Revolution was one in which enslaved people had thrown off their shackles and declared their right to self-determination. So once Haiti became an independent nation, it appeared to be the ultimate manifestation of what black activists hoped to achieve. As a result, as early as 1804, emancipated Northerners passionately defended Haitian independence, enthusiastically celebrated Haiti's liberation from colonial rule, and even considered migrating to the Black Republic. They also grappled with pain, disappointment, and frustration whenever Haiti struggled with internal political conflicts or racist attacks from whites in the United States and Europe. So I want to talk very quickly. I'm actually going to try to summarize um, some of this quickly so we can get to um, some of the, the heart of some of the really juicy stuff. But I want to emphasize a couple of things that happened in 1804 that really indicate that from the beginning, the, um, the, the sovereignty and the independence of Haiti is vitally important um, to the black population in the United States. Um, so there's kind of two compelling examples of this. The first is a series of articles that were written by an anonymous author known only as the injured man of color. 
And he writes a series of articles um, in the spring of 1804 defending um, not only the right of Haiti to be independent and sovereign and the formerly enslaved people to be free, um, but he's actually also defending Dessalines' um, actions in trying to um, purge the country of um, French colonists. And what he does is, I think, is actually a very clever um, sort of strategic uh, effort on his part, which is to draw a parallel between the American Revolution and the Haitian Revolution and essentially say, so why is it okay for you to kill people <laughs> and fight for your liberty, but it's not okay right, for us um, to do the same? So this is just one sort of um, quick excerpt from that. He says, when you fought for your independence, when you resisted the arm of Britain and gained the cause for which you struggled, were you not elated with your success? Were you not proud of your victory? Did not your souls spurn at the man who dared call you rebels and traitors? And he goes on through these articles to basically conjure up ideas of liberty and death, um, fundamental ideas about uh, people's fundamental rights to freedom, and inserts the Haitian struggle um, into that. And he also has this really interesting point where he uh, essentially highlights the fact that Americans, the people who became Americans and what became the United States, had felt enslaved by the British. But the Haitians, in fact, had been slaves, <laughs> right? And so they had even more of a right um, to fight for their um, freedom. About a month after the injured man of color publishes these articles, there's also an uprising um, in Philadelphia, a rebellion, where about 200 black Philadelphians um, take to the streets. And they, according to a number of newspaper articles, they actually march through the streets, and this is a quote, damning the whites and saying they will show them San Domingo. Right, So it's the sort of call to, we're going to show you really what's up right? Um, relative to um, the Haitian struggle. So the point here is that even in the North, um, US blacks celebrated and honored the Haitian Revolution and independent Haiti and used it as a model for their own local liberation struggles. Now, in the first several years following Haitian independence, and I want to point out, as often happens with a dramatic revolution, there was significant political turmoil um, in Haiti as newly emancipated people sought to determine what direction their sovereign nation ought to go. During that era, Dessalines, Christophe, and other political leaders were killed off or overthrown. So it's not until 1820 when uh, Jean-Pierre Boyer becomes the new president of Haiti, that we see a period of time in which the country is sort of united under um, one ruler. And in fact, it's in 1822 that Boyer not only unites all of Haiti under his rule, but conquered what is now known as the Dominican Republic and unites the entire island under his rule. Therefore, by the early 1820s, black northerners not only expressed verbal support for Haiti, they also began to view Haiti as a potential home. Frustrated by persistent racism and inequality in the US, they eventually formed an immigration movement. In 1824, President Boyer unveils an inducement plan in which the Haitian government agrees to pay transportation, supplies, education, and most importantly, citizenship for all African-Americans who are willing to migrate to Haiti. And he actually gives this speech that's sort of disseminated um, in, among uh, free black communities in the North in which he says, we are all descendants of Africa. We all share um, African blood. And so therefore, the moment you step foot on Haiti, you will become um, Haitian. 
So with his support, an estimated 13,000 African Americans migrated from the United States to Haiti during the 1820s in hopes of finding true freedom, equality, and citizenship. Ultimately, the immigration movement to Haiti was short-lived, and we can talk more in the discussion period about why, if you like. Um, but the point here is that even though the immigration movement was short-lived, Haiti's political destiny still figured prominently in the minds of African Americans, particularly because Haiti increasingly found it under, itself under attack. And this is where we get into the tricky part, right? So far, we've talked about how the Haitian Revolution and Haitian sovereignty was celebrated, right? But we know overwhelmingly it was... Um, opposed. Although the, the Haitian Revolution was inspiring to the opponents of slavery, the notion of a successful slave rebellion that resulted in the first independent black republic sent shockwaves around the world. And not surprisingly, it was not well received by the major slaveholding nations, the United States, England, and of course France. For many of these countries, the idea of an independent black republic composed of former slaves was not only repugnant, but threatening. After all, such a reality shook the very foundations upon that uh, shook the very foundations that upon which the fragile system of slavery was based. If, sla if Haiti could have a successful slave rebellion, couldn't the same thing happen elsewhere, perhaps in their very midst? And ultimately, it was the fragile system of slavery that provided the political and economic foundation of their societies. Even worse, the reality of Haiti challenged the other central component of slavery, white supremacy. As a result, Western nations immediately imposed both diplomatic and economic sanctions on the newly formed republic. The United States, for example, imposed both diplomatic and trade embargoes against Haiti. Now, the roots of U.S. policy towards Haiti stemmed back to 1791, shortly after the outbreak of the Haitian Revolution, when George Washington's administration contributed significant funds to assist French planters in their fight against the black rebels. From that time forward, an unwillingness to accept the reality of a free black nation marred the U.S. government's policy towards Haiti. Now, admittedly, there was a very brief period in the midst of the Haitian Revolution when John Adams's administration offered some support to Toussaint Louverture in hopes that Louverture would contain French military operations in the rest of the Atlantic world. So for Adams, this is really a, a strategic issue, right? He's concerned about the spread of French authority and military power in the Americas, and so he's willing to throw a little support behind Toussaint to kind of keep the French in check. But once Haiti gained full independence, the US government policy towards Haiti cooled significantly. Thomas Jefferson, for example, believed that Haiti should be under French rule and openly encouraged Napoleon to reconquer the island. After Haiti declared its independence in 1804, Jefferson suspended all diplomatic and commercial relations with the former colony. Significantly, given its thriving economic relationship with Haiti, the US economic embargo only lasted a few years. And I think it's actually important to underscore that point, that the US um, economy was very deeply and heavily tied to trade with the Black Republic, right? Whether it be a French colony or whether it be an independent nation, especially the northern economy is very heavily dependent on um, its trade relationship with Haiti. So they're trying to take this really strong stand, right, and impose an economic embargo, but it really only lasts a few years because they can't hold out um, financially. 
So even though they re-engage in this economic relationship, the United States still did not agree to formally recognize Haiti diplomatically until 1862. And so there's this bizarre relationship that goes on for almost 60 years, where the United States is benefiting tremendously from its economic relationship with Haiti, and yet officially and diplomatically they're pretending the country doesn't exist. Now, while the, while the U.S. refused to recognize Haiti, France actually agreed to do so in 1825, over 20 years after Haitian independence. But as I imagine many of you already know, Haiti's freedom came at a very high price. In order to gain diplomatic recognition and to try to gain entrance into the global trade arena, the Haitian government was forced to enter into a very costly agreement with France. In 1825, 14 French warships arrived in Port-au-Prince and pointed nearly 500 cannons directly at the capital city. Their intention was to create a naval blockade, and that's what you see um, depicted in this illustration. So their intention was to basically cut off um, the, the Black Republic unless the Haitian government conceded to their terms. And I want to underscore this point because as much as people talk and write about the, the, the indemnity, this financial agreement that emerged, almost no one talks about the military pressure, <laughs> right, that came behind um, and came along with uh, what happened in this exchange. So what were the terms that the French government um, looked for Haiti to concede to? Well, the French demanded that Haiti pay compensation and reparations to France. And yeah, I did say that, reparations. Um, from the perspective of the French, they wanted compensation and reparations for the loss of their property. And yes, that included the value of what they perceived to be their human property. Um, and so essentially what the French does is use a team of accountants to place a value on all the land and physical assets, including the half million citizens who were formerly enslaved. The declared value amounted to 150 million gold francs. And although historical you know, monetary conversions are always tricky, in contemporary terms, that, that amount would equate to at least $20 billion. In exchange for financial compensation, Haiti agreed to rec France agreed to recognize Haiti as a sovereign nation. But more importantly, the Haitians are surrounded, right? And so they realize they either have to agree to this or they have to try to fight it out again. So with their diplomatic and economic backs against the wall, the Haitians agreed to pay the French 150 million gold francs, an agreement that was later simply known as the indemnity. Payments began immediately. And although Haiti was finally able to buy its freedom and diplomatic recognition, the debt of 150 million francs is a debt from which they have never fully been able to recover. For nearly 100 years, from 1825 to 1922, France forced Haiti to pay an annual fee for their freedom and independence. And it is this reality, more than any other factor, that explains how and why Haiti eventually became known as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Now, admittedly, in 1838, the debt was reduced to 60 million francs. But I mean, too much money is still too much money. And the annual fee was still far too high, which meant that the country fell further into debt. Even at the time, United States newspapers admitted that France's financial expectations were entirely unreasonable. But Haiti was still forced to comply. And in order to do so, the Haitian government began, began borrowing from other nations, including the US, to raise enough funds to pay France, which led to cycles of debt. 
And just very quickly, to give you a sense of how devastating this arrangement became, consider these statistics. By the end of the 19th century, right around 1898, Haiti was sending 80% of its national revenue to pay the debt to France. And in 1915, due to avaricious interest rates and compounding interest, Haiti still owed France 121 million francs. So the debt had gotten reduced to 60 million. But because of the interest rates that they were charged, by 1915, after paying for all of those years, the amount that they still owed had actually doubled. And most of their resources went to paying off its debt. For instance, 98% in 1915 of the revenue that Haiti generated from coffee production went to servicing debt, with only 2% available for all other expenses. In the meantime, Haiti continued to suffer diplomatically. Although France finally agreed to recognize Haitian independence, the U.S. stubbornly refused to follow suit. The U.S. eventually reopened trade relations, as I mentioned earlier, with Haiti, and benefited tremendously from their commercial relationship. The U.S. supplied Haiti with most of its manufactured goods, which allowed U.S. investors and businesses to make extraordinary amounts of money. But the U.S. still would not officially recognize the newly formed republic. Now, undoubtedly, and I think it's important to take a moment to emphasize this point, the United States government's policy towards Haiti was clearly driven by Southern politicians and slaveholders' desires. In the wake of various slave revolts in the U.S., Southerners worried that recognizing Haiti would be a tacit endorsement of slave rebellion and therefore ferociously opposed the idea of establishing formal diplomatic relations with the Black Republic. And so to illustrate this point, I want to draw your attention to a debate um, that takes place on the floors of Congress in 1826. So in 1826, there's a rumor afoot that um, there is going to be a conference of um, American nations, independent American nations, and there's a rumor that Haiti might be represented at this gathering. At the mere mention of Haiti, Southern congressional leaders unleashed their fury in a tirade against the Haitian Republic. So I'm going to share with you just a a few quick um, excerpts from this debate. Starting with our good friend, Senator Robert Hayne of South Carolina, who argued vehemently against recognizing Haiti in this fashion. We can never acknowledge her independence. Other nations will do as they please but let us take the high ground. These questions belong to a class with which the peace and safety of a large portion of our union forbid us to even discuss. Likewise, James Hamilton, also of South Carolina, lodged his complaint on the grounds that it would be a violation of state law and the principle of states' rights. Haitian independence is not to be tolerated in any form. Our opinions are derived from a solemn conviction that the consequences of this recognition would be fatal to our repose and produce a concussion, which must either end in the annihilation of these states or the destruction of the power of general government. So to some degree, Hayne and Hamilton are sort of tiptoeing around the issues of race and rebellion, but other congressmen tackled these subjects more directly. John Berrien of Georgia asks his colleagues this, can the people of the South permit the intercourse which would, establish from, which would result from establishing relations of any sort with Haiti? Is the emancipated slave, his hands yet reeking in the blood of his murdered master, to be admitted to their ports, to spread the doctrines of insurrection, and to strengthen and invigorate them by exhibiting in his own person an example of successful revolt? Now, the importance, and this is really where it sort of connects to my research, 
the importance in my mind of this is not simply the opposition, right, of white politicians to the recognition of Haiti, but also the fact that this issue was not lost on black activists during this period. The relationship between the US government's refusal to acknowledge Haiti and the continuation of Southern slavery was in fact painfully obvious to them. Frederick Douglass, for example, aptly described white America's responses to the Haitian Revolution as a demonstration of their discomfort with the black self-determination exhibited by the Haitian struggle for freedom. Speaking in 1893, Douglass referred to the United States' coolness towards Haiti in the following manner. Haiti is black, and we have not yet forgiven Haiti for being black. After Haiti had shaken off the fetters of bondage, and long after her freedom and independence had been recognized by all other civilized nations, we continued to refuse to acknowledge the fact and treated her as outside the sisterhood of nations. Now, as Douglas's reflections indicated, the United States did indeed continue its policy of non-recognition. But by the late 1830s, opposition was mounting. Black activists strongly supported Haitian independence, and their endorsement remained consistent throughout the antebellum era, a position that was deeply connected to the freedom struggle in the United States. In their view, the, US the U.S.'s refusal to recognize Haiti not only threatened the notion of black autonomy, but it also bolstered the South's mission to strengthen slavery. As a result, the black leadership openly attacked the South and its vehement commitment to slavery and criticized the government's repudiation of Haiti. So I want to just give you um, a quick example of this um, from Samuel Cornish, the editor of the Colored American newspaper, which was really the only black newspaper at the time. Um, who repeatedly and in numerous ways expressed his frustration about the government's uh, policy towards Haiti in the pages of his paper. And so I'm just going to give you one um, quick excerpt from this. Um, in 1838, he wrote, Haiti must be acknowledged and a con honorable consular relation established. Every patriotic and philanthropic citizen should petition Congress for the recognition of Haitian independence. If it is important that we should have amicable relations and interchange national courtesies with any nation, it is so in regard to Haiti, a country that has won its freedom and independence and established them against the world. And here again, what's interesting about this um, and I'm just going to kind of summarize a couple of key points here. What's interesting about this is that throughout the antebellum period, black activists repeatedly used the same strategy that the injured man of color <laughs> had used before them, right? Trying to highlight the contradiction really around a couple of things. The contradiction between the celebration of the American Revolution and the demonization of the Haitian Revolution but also the fundamental contradiction between the idea that one group of humans has a right to liberty and another group um, of humans did not. So over the course of the 1830s and 40s, this really becomes kind of a cause celeb, um, certainly within the black abolition, abolitionist community, but among the white abolitionist um, community as well. And in fact, over the course of the 1830s and into the early 1840s, black and white um, abolitionists bombard Congress with petitions demanding the recognition of Haiti. And in fact, just between 1838 and 1839, Congress received more than 350 petitions containing thousands of signatures from Americans across the northern and western states. But the petitions went largely ignored. 
Following Congress's refusal to seriously consider the petitions, Frederick Douglass, again, unabashedly blamed slaveholders, the system of slavery, and racism for the government's absurd refusal to establish diplomatic relations with Haiti. In a stunning critique of what they called the slave power, which was really the sort of southern political machine, Douglass vented his frustration with the Haitian situation. And this is a quote from Douglass. With the meanness as well as the insolence of tyranny, the slave power has compelled the federal government to abstain from acknowledging the neighbor republic of Haiti, where slaves have become freemen and established an independent nation. Unfortunately for black leaders, however, the argument in favor of Haiti became more difficult to make by the early 1850s. In 1843, Jean-Pierre Boyer had been ousted from the presidency, and after a series of short-lived presidencies, another military coup d'etat led to the presidency of Faustin Soluc. Late in 1849, he was named Emperor Faustin I and was officially crowned in 1852. Now, it's important to emphasize that this was not a change in name only. The decision to embrace the title of emperor was a reflection of the fact that the Haitian government was moving away from its democratic republican values towards the vision of an empire. Faustin I emphasized class hierarchy, created a secret police and a personal army to destroy his opponents. The government also became more imperialistic in its foreign relations. Most notably, Faustin I launched a series of attacks against Santo Domingo, which had gained its independence in 1844. In the face of such disturbing political trends, black activists found it difficult, although not impossible, to justify their criticism of American policy. In 1850, our good friend again, Frederick Douglass, publicly blamed the US government for the political problems in Haiti. As Douglass explained, Faustin only turned to despotism because the US and other nations refused to acknowledge Haitian independence. And I have my moments with Frederick Douglass, like I have a little like love-hate thing with Frederick Douglass, but this is actually one of my favorite um, Frederick Douglass quotes. What has the government done in the case of Haiti? It has scouted with the most provoking contempt any act looking to welcome the black republic into the sisterhood of nations until at length that republic disgusted with the very name of republicanism abandon all show of it and put on the robes of imperialism finding as she has found far more justice and honor among european despots than she has been able to find among american democrats so to me what's really clever about what douglas has done here right is that he has a really good twofold strategy. On the one hand, he's very clearly distancing himself from Faustin's policies, right? He's saying, I'm not feeling the direction Faustin is going. But he is simultaneously effectively arguing that Haiti's internal policies were due at least in part to the failure of US foreign policy. So despite Faustin's policies, anti-slavery advocates continue to press the issue of Haiti's diplomatic status. And throughout most of the 1850s, both Frederick Douglass, along with Charles Sumner, who was probably one of the, um, the most leading and sort of most recognizable of um, the abolitionist um, senators, continued to argue um, for Haitian independence throughout the um, 1850s. Now, interestingly enough, it is probably largely due to the tension, right, between the U.S. government and the efforts to obtain um, diplomatic recognition for Haiti, that by the 1850s, some black leaders um, begin to or sort of return to the idea of demonstrating their support for Haiti and their frustration with the United States by revisiting the immigration movement. Early in the decade, there were rumblings of support for Haitian immigration, and as the 1850s progressed, the movement gained strength. In 1857, 
um, the, the black activist you see depicted here, James Theodore Holly, published a pamphlet about the Haitian Revolution and the benefits of immigration, in which he argued that black people in the United States should unite with the people of Haiti to create a powerful demonstration of black nationalism. By 1858, Holly was traveling extensively throughout the North advocating for immigration, and on at least one occasion, he reported that there were several thousand people preparing to depart. Moreover, his efforts apparently garnered the attention of Faust in the first government because the emperor sent a representative to encourage black migration from various locations, including New Orleans and Missouri. Yet before Faustin's plans were able to fully materialize, he was deposed by a military coup d'etat in January of 1859. Uh, Favre Geffrard led a successful revolt against the Haitian leadership, ousted Faustin, and reestablished a Republican government. The black community in the U.S. was especially intrigued by this dramatic shift, especially after President Giffard unveiled an incentive program that was nearly identical to President Boyer's plan nearly 30 years prior, in which he agreed to provide land, citizenship, education, financial inducements, and travel stipends to American blacks willing to relocate to Haiti. Now, what's interesting here is that the politics of what happens at the turn of um, the 1860s really changes the story of the immigration movement in this um, era. Initially, support was enthusiastic, but by the end of eight, and, and by the end of 1861, approximately 3,000 African Americans had departed for Haiti from various regions throughout the United States. But by the end of 1862, it was clear that most activists had abandoned the Haitian immigration project and were refocusing their energy on the fight against slavery in the United States. Of course, by then, the Civil War had commenced, and many black leaders became hopeful that slavery would end in the United States. Ironically, however, the year 1862 also signaled the dawn of new hope for the Haitian people. At long last, the United States government finally agreed to recognize Haiti's independence and extend official diplomatic relations. Once the South seceded from the Union, there was no longer any compelling reason for the U.S. to ignore Haiti's existence. And I'm actually going to put a slightly finer point on this, which is that in some ways this was actually the recognition of Haiti on the part of the Union government was really kind of a way to stick it to the Confederacy, right? Um, to sort of, you know, kind of jab the knife in even a little deeper. Um, by late 1861, U.S. President Abraham Lincoln received communication from the government's commercial agent in Port-au-Prince that the American economy would suffer if the Union continued to deny Haiti's independence. As he explained, the government's non-recognition policy was, quote, altogether disastrous to the interests of our commerce and almost destroys the political influence of our government and its commercial agents. As a result, in December 1861, Lincoln concluded that he should reconsider their position. In a statement to Congress, he wrote the following. If any good reason exists why we should per persevere any longer in withholding our recognition of the independence and sovereignty of Haiti, I am unable to discern it. Despite his initial support for the notion of recognizing Haitian independence, Lincoln and the Union government did not take immediate action. On the contrary, the issue dragged on for nearly a year before it finally came before Congress. Senator Charles Sumner, who had criticized the government's policy towards Haiti in the 1850s, 
argued that acknowledging Haiti would be an important step in destroying the vestiges of slavery. Not surprisingly, there was significant opposition to the bill, but in June 1862, President Lincoln finally enacted the law recognizing Haiti and appointed the first Haitian commissioner. The Liberator newspaper, which I imagine is familiar to some of you, it was probably the most famous anti-slavery newspaper um, during the period led by uh, William Lloyd Garrison. The Liberator celebrated the decision, declaring, it means that this government henceforth recognizes blacks as citizens capable of a national life, not as chattels who have no rights which white men are bound to respect. I imagine many of you recognize the phrasing in that quote. It comes, of course, from um, the Dred Scott decision, which had been handed down by the Supreme Court in 1857, which had famously declared that black people were chattel property with no rights which the white man was bound to respect. The Liberator was clearly trying to challenge such a notion, but the paper might have been a bit too hasty in declaring victory. Haiti's political success in 1862 proved to be hollow at best. Gaining diplomatic recognition from the United States, which had once seemed, once seemed beneficial, exposed Haiti to the possibility of foreign intervention and eventually resulted in occupation and manipulation by foreign nations. As I noted at the beginning, the first 100 years of Haitian history was marred by political and economic embargoes that devastated the black republic's attempts to establish and stabilize their independent republic. The country suffered through military coups, political instability, and conflict over how to make a transition to a new country, especially when the rest of the free world refused to acknowledge them and their economy was stymied by their debt to France. The second hundred years, however, became the exact opposite. Rather than being ignored and excluded, Haiti became the subject of conquest, occupation, and control by Western nations, particularly the United States. Now, as I stated at the beginning, the period after the Civil War is just really not my happy place, and it, it is not um, my area of expertise. <clears throat> but I just want to conclude by highlighting a few key moments um, that take place in the 20th century, because again, I think it's really vital to understanding um, Haiti's current plight. Between 1862 and 1915, Haiti experienced tremendous internal turmoil. Dozens of military coups, horrific violence, and political instability devastated the island nation. For some observers, this might serve as evidence that, Haiti, that Haitians were unable to effectively govern themselves. The reality, however, is more complex. In many ways, the story of Haiti's internal conflict is not unique. Political turmoil, violence, repression, and military coups have often followed revolutions in history. The American, French, and Russian revolutions are just a few of the most obvious examples. Even so, the extent and frequency of Haiti's problems set it apart from other revolutionary legacies. So what makes Haiti different? It is not, as Haiti's detractors might claim, a pathology among Haitians or evidence of a curse. It is instead a function of the social, political, and economic legacies of Haiti's history as a former slave colony that gained its freedom against all odds. Between 1868 and 1915, following decades of political and economic embargoes, Haiti was vulnerable and was soon targeted by many countries, including the United States, Germany, and France, as a site for potential political and economic imperialism. Early in the 1870s, the United States sought to annex neighboring Santo Domingo and make it a US possession, in hopes of using their position to reach across the mountains and reimpose slavery in Haiti, especially since slavery had recently been abolished within the borders of the United States. 
Haiti also remained vulnerable to domination by other Western nations. Ultimately, it was Germany's interest in Haiti that had the most profound impact on Haiti's destiny. In 1914, following the outbreak of World War II, the US government became increasingly concerned about Germany's preoccupation with the Caribbean. Although the United States officially stayed neutral during much of the First World War, it remained determined to counteract Germany's potential power in the Americas. As a result, in 1914, following more political conflict among the Haitian leadership, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson used the Monroe Doctrine to send American troops to invade Haiti and commenced what became a devastating, brutal military occupation. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Monroe Doctrine, it was uh, essentially passed in 1823 and stated that further efforts by European nations to colonize land or interfere with states in North or South America would be viewed as acts of aggression, requiring U.S. intervention. So um, essentially what Woodrow Wilson does is sort of use the Monroe Doctrine as justification and um, led a, a military um, occupation that ruled Haiti by force from 1915 to 1934, often using extreme violence to su suppress Haitians who opposed foreign occupation. In one skirmish alone, the US military killed over 2,000 Haitian protesters. And these are just uh, a few images of um, the U.S. military occupation um, of Haiti. You can see um, one U.S. regiment there in um, 1915. Um, this is the capture and incarceration of a, a Haitian um, protester. And this is actually the rounding up of a series of protesters. Um, you can see here, according to the image, these are a few of the country's bad men, <laughs> right, that the U.S. military took into um, custody. For 19 years, the United States government controlled customs in Haiti, collected taxes, and ran many governmental institutions, all of which benefited the United States. In 1922, for example, the United States extended Haiti a debt consolidation loan that was designed to pay off its remaining debt to France, which amounted to about $40 million. But in many ways, Haiti simply exchanged one master for another. Although Haiti was finally free of its debt to France, it now had a new creditor, the United States government and the US banks who made a small fortune off the loan arrangement. Although the US officially withdrew troops from Haiti in 1934, the US government still maintained fiscal control over the country until 1947, when Haiti finally paid off its loan. In order to do so, however, Haiti was forced to deplete its gold reserves, leaving the country bereft. More importantly, however, the removal of the U.S. military did not result in the removal of U.S. influence in Haiti. As the Cold War set in after World War II, the most devastating impact of U.S. interference in Haiti was the government's ongoing support of the Duvalier regime, which ruled Haiti from 18, uh, I keep saying 18, you guys have to forgive me for that, 1957 to 1986. Again, using the argument that Haiti might fall to communism, the U.S. government concluded that it would offer full support to the Duvalier government. During that 30-year period, Haitians were forced to live under the dictators Papa Doc and Baby Doc Duvalier, a father and son team who openly murdered their opponents and stole millions of dollars from the Haitian people. 
The Duvalier regime began in 1956 when Francois Papadoc Duvalier seized power in a military coup d'etat. Within a decade, Papadoc declared himself president for life and imposed a brutal dictatorship. The US government turned a blind eye to Duvalier's violence, corruption, and human rights violations, and even provided formal military training to Duvalier's counterinsurgency force known as the Leopards. Some members of the Haitian leadership have since claimed that the Duvaliers stole from the Haitian people close to $1 billion. Even so, both Duvaliers enjoyed the backing of the United States because they staunchly supported the US policies against communism, and more importantly, I think, offered economic opportunities to American businesses. These problems grew exponentially under Baby Doc's leadership. In 1971, I said 19 that time, <laughs> Papa Doc Duvalier died, and his son Jean-Claude, Baby Doc, assumed power within the US, with the US government's endorsement. Many American politicians and businessmen saw Baby Doc's regime as an opportunity to exploit the island nation and turn it into what they called the Taiwan of the Caribbean. Given its proximity to the United States, American financial investors convinced Baby Doc to reduce Haiti's focus on agriculture and shift the economy towards manufacturing and export. The problem, however, was that Haiti's economy suffered immeasurably from this plan. Agricultural production dropped precipitously, and Haiti was forced into a dependent and vulnerable economic position in the global market. In the meantime, Baby Doc's reign of terror continued. He formed death squads known as the Tonton Maku that murdered as many as 60,000 opponents of his regime while stealing millions of dollars from the Haitian people and accumulating hundreds of millions of dollars of debt of, in national debt. According to most estimates, by the end of the 1980s, Haiti owed over $1.5 billion in external debt, and 40% of that debt was created by the Duvaliers. It is also estimated that Baby Doc himself pocketed $900 million of those loans. Meanwhile, American investors benefited financially from the spiraling national debt. In July 2003, for example, Haiti sent 90% of its foreign reserves to financial institutions in Washington, D.C. in an effort to pay their national debt. Baby Doc was forced to flee Haiti in 1986 in the face of growing opposition from the Haitian people. And shortly thereafter, in 1990, Haiti held free, peaceful, democratic elections, which resulted in Jean-Bertrand Aristide's short-lived first presidency. And this is an image of um, the celebrations that were taking place when free and democratic elections um, were held for the first time. And this, of course, is um, Aristide at the time of his election. Since 1990, Haiti has continued to suffer extraordinary political conflict and violence. Aristide's first presidency ended in a coup in 1991, and he lived in exile until 1994. After his return, he won election again and was president from 2001 to 2004. Now, this next part I know is going to hurt the feelings of some folks who are fans of the Clintons, um, especially because the Clintons love talking about Haiti and how they went there on their honeymoon and how much they love and care about Haiti. 
But under Bill Clinton's administration, the U.S. implemented devastating policies against Haiti. Under Bill Clinton, the U.S. government pressured Aristide to drop foreign tariffs at a tremendous profit to U.S. businesses while gutting the Haitian economy. Likewise, Bill Clinton banned Haitian refugees from entering the United States, choosing instead to jail them at Guantanamo Bay Prison, a policy that continued under George Bush. Aristide, for his part, during his second presidency, tried to pressure France to pay $21 billion in restitution to Haiti for the years of payment that Haiti was required to pay. Perhaps in retaliation in 2004, just after the bicentennial of Haitian independence, Aristide was forcibly removed from political office, a move he claimed was orchestrated by the Bush administration. He spent the next seven years in exile in South Africa and was al only allowed to return to Haiti in 2011, shortly after the earthquake. Baby Doc Duvalier, interestingly enough, was also allowed to return after the earthquake, and there was extensive discussion about whether to bring him up on charges for his conduct while president, but he died in 2014 before action was taken. The last 20 years have only reinforced Haiti's negative reputation as a country marred by corruption, poverty, incompetence, and ignorance. Even today, Haiti is plagued by protests over financial mismanagement, presidential embezzlement, and outraged over ele alleged election fraud. Whatever the outcome of the next election, however, current understandings of Haiti are incomplete without the broader historical context. One cannot grasp the reason behind Haiti's plight unless one acknowledges Haiti's painful journey. The first 100 years in which Haiti was punished, abused, and excluded from the global economy and political community, followed by the second 100 years in which Haiti has been occupied, controlled, manipulated, and exploited by Western nations. And in the end, it is the combination of these factors, the extremes of either neglect or overt imperialism, and the unending weight of external debt that have caused Haiti's current predicament. So as we mark the 10th anniversary of the devastating earthquake that killed nearly 300,000 Haitians, we need to acknowledge the full history of Haiti and the role the American government has played in creating Haiti's plight. This will be particularly crucial for those of us who wish to see Haiti recover, blossom, and grow in the coming years. But the question that Frederick Douglass posed in 1893 still remains. Will the US and other Western nations ever forgive Haiti for being black? statistics with you if you're curious. But um, throughout most of the 19th century, 
the U.S. economy, especially in the North, is actually heavily tied to the Haitian economy. And it's largely as a result of um, what I kind of went quickly over um, in the talk, which is that you know, the U.S. is importing manufactured goods, right, and profiting off of um, the relationship with Haiti that way. But then they're also getting all the raw materials, right? Haitians are still producing coffee and sugar. And actually, in the sort of later part of the antebellum period, like from the 1840s to the 1860s, the really big product that Haiti is exporting that everybody wants is lumber and wood. So it's mahogany, it's logwood, it's all of these. Um, and actually, I was fascinated by that. I think, you know, being someone who had studied slavery in the Caribbean in the 19th century, I assumed it was all coffee and sugar. But then I actually started looking at, um, you know, all of the, the um, records <laughs> that are coming out of, um, of Haiti through the U.S. government at this time. And actually, the bulk of what U.S. businesses are, are exporting um, from Haiti is lumber. Um, but they, you know, there's all these newspaper articles in the middle of um, like the 1830s and extending into the 1840s, highlighting the fact that Haiti is actually one of the United States' most important trade partners. They're like their fourth most important, do you know, um, in terms of domestic goods, and the fifth most important in terms of their sort of foreign exports. So they're actually heavily, heavily dependent on their trade relationship with Haiti. And what northern, what northern businessmen in particular are really upset about is the fact that because the United States won't recognize Haiti diplomatically, the Haitians charge a 10% duty on every US <laughs> ship that comes in and out of the country. And so one of, I didn't obviously have time to go into detail on this, but one of the strongest arguments that's made in favor of US recognition of Haiti is like, this is costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, right? Um, because we're having to pay these stupid taxes because you won't just acknowledge that this country that we have this booming trade relationship actually exists, right? Um, so yeah, and actually it's interesting because it's not just in the anti-slavery newspapers, it's in the mainstream newspapers too, right? American businessmen kind of have their panties in a wad about this, you know? Like this is costing us way too much money and all you need to do is say, this country that we all know exists, right, um, does in fact exist, and they're like, not having it. <laughs> What's interesting, just really quickly, as a side note too, is that the Haitian government kind of goes back and forth on whether or not they care, right? <laughs> um, and I've had in, in this project that I'm working on, which is really about kind of how the black population responds to this issue, um, it's been kind of interesting to see how there are periods of time in which black abolitionists advocating for US recognition of Haiti is in different periods slightly out of step with what the Haitian government wants or what they care about, right? Because at some points, Haiti is like, we exist regardless, right? <laughs> Whether or not you acknowledge us, we don't need you to acknowledge us for us to be here. And in the meantime, we're making some money off the fact that you're pretending we're not here, right? <laughs> so it's interesting because in certain periods of time, the Haitian government cares a lot and other times, they're like, whatever, don't recognize us if you don't want to, we're still here. Thank you so much for this um, wonderful talk. Um, so in, in, I'm gonna push you into your not happy zone for the time okay. for today. Um, Look at my courage. So in a, in a moment where we're still having I, what I think is an insane debate in terms of whether it's race or class, like I think yeah. 
one of the most interesting and most radical critiques that the Haitian Revolution offers is that it's both this bold assert assertion of black sovereignty, but as Michel Rolle Triol talks about in that magnificent yeah. article that you referenced, it's also anti-capitalist because these ex-slave-turned-black revolutionaries are challenging the conditions that make a global capitalist system possible. Right? Yeah. So the French warships come back in a reaction to that as well because these ex-slaves turned autonomous black, uh, black Haitian citizens, yes. they don't want to go back to this previous economic system. They, right? they, they, they want to adopt like a smallholder peasant type of agricultural production. Yep. And to a certain extent, that's why the French warships are there yes. and they've never left. Yes. Right, and I think I love how you connect um, the French warships to. I mean, there's testimonies of U.S. Marines literally raiding uh, the gold reserves and then taking physically the, the Haitian gold reserves in 1915 right. and taking it to Wall Street banks. And then, as you spunnily show, now we have the IMF and the Clinton Foundation. Yeah. So what do you? So thinking about these broader questions, like what do you think that the Haitian Revolution and that dual movement of a radical assertion of blackness and black sovereignty and, and anti-capitalism? Like what can that offer in terms of um, our, our current political moment, whether it's in the U.S. or what's this movement that has been severely undercovered in Haiti, but it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a popular rebellion that's been going on for two, three months. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say personally, in my mind, it offers everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think that one of the tri I want to just really quick, and I'll get more into that in a second, but to just kind of highlight something you said I think is really important, um, <clears throat> which is the fact that it is that the Haitian Revolution, and at least those who are on the ground participating in the revolution, it is, it is certainly not only a racial revolt, but it is certainly an anti-capitalist revolt, you know? And part of the tension that that creates, if we're gonna be totally honest, and sometimes like we have to be honest in ways that hurts our feelings, but, <laughs> but like if we're gonna be totally honest, that is not only what drives the conflict between Haiti and these Western nations, but it is also what drives the conflict between the Haitian people and its leaders. Right, because what gets Boyer ousted, what gets Dessalines assassinated, what what gets you know even to a certain extent Petion Christophe, right? Like to a certain degree, what causes the conflict between the Haitian government and the people is this um, tension between what a post-revolutionary society is going to look like from one perspective and what it's going to look like from another perspective. And it's part of the reason why the indemnity becomes such a trap, right? Because once the country has been shackled to this massive foreign debt, political leaders then have to find some kind of a way to generate that money, right? But in my opinion, if left to their own devices, the Haitian people probably would have been much more comfortable and happy with just sort of a self-sustaining subsistence, <laughs> you know what I mean, type of economy, right? Um, and here's Boyer gets ousted because he keeps trying to force people, right, to go back to, he, he imposes this thing called the, the code rural, basically, right? Saying, okay, everybody who lives out in the country has to get back to work on the plantations. Well, he's kind of forced to do that because now the country is shackled to this massive national debt, right? But the reality is that that's not what the people want, right? And so it absolutely is, right? Um, a battle for freedom and liberty but it's also a battle for not just physical freedom and liberty, but economic freedom and liberty too, right? And among the people, they don't necessarily want what the government keeps forcing them into, um, but the government keeps forcing them into that because now they're shackled to this debt that they have to find some kind of a way to pay. Also, really quickly, please tell me that your title is drawn from a public entry song. It is, of course. Yes. I'm a child of the 90s. Yes, yes. of course. Good. That makes me so happy. Yeah, this is actually my... 
my secret plan. So I've been going back and forth a little bit with my publishers about what the title should be. And the original project was called The Cradle of Hope, which was actually from like a, a speech that a black activist made kind of describing Haiti as the Cradle of Hope. But as many of you probably know, publishers hate titles that have quotes. And so they wanted me to change it to something else, and I don't even want to talk about it because it's kind of boring. And for my publisher who's watching, I love you, but it's boring. Um, <laughs> but um, so I actually want to call the book Fear of a Black Republic. Yeah, so I haven't told her that yet. I, I, I said I'm going to send, I'm going to give you the whole manuscript, and then you're going to love the title when I tell you what it is. But yeah, it is 100% a riff off of Fear of a Black Planet. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, young man. Um, thank you. Um, I'm also, a, I'm also a, a 20th century, so I might be pulling you in that direction. Yes, okay. <laughs> but I want I wanted to um, hear you speak a bit more about the ways in which Haiti, and some way, I, I guess this is a sort of comment. Then you know, um, the way this provides a kind of longer genealogy for late 20th century politics of containment and other yeah. stuff. It seems, I mean, all the way up to Guantanamo, yeah. it seems like a very Haiti tracks the kind of larger. Um, um, U.S. foreign policy in relation yeah, to absolutely. containing um, mm -hmm. class and racial kind of upheaval. So yeah. just, I just wanted to hear more about how you see this in relation to U.S. foreign policy yeah. in that direction. No, 100%, and I think that's why I do keep tying it back to this like fear of a black republic thing, you know, but I also keep tying it back to this idea of like Haiti is black and we have not yet forgiven Haiti for being black, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the core of this is a fundamental struggle between the folks who actually and genuinely believe in like freedom and liberty, right? And the folks who want to, who feel like that's okay for a very small portion of the population, right? And are committed to denying it to everyone else. And it's part of the reason why I wanted to back up this story to the 19th century, right? Because in order to really understand, right, what happens in the 20th century, and I would argue is still happening right now, you know? I mean, there are some painful things we don't want to talk about, about even, for example, Obama's relationship to Haiti. That one hurts, right? But we have to be willing to talk about what the policies, right, towards these various countries have been. And, you know, my position is that what happens to Haiti in the 20th century and what's happening to Haiti right now is still connected to the fact that we can't, this country won't forgive Haiti for being black, right? For all of the things that that means, right? It's anti-capitalist position, you know what I mean? But also just the fact that there are black people who feel like they have the same right to liberty and freedom as everyone else. Like, that is just such a, a fundamentally repulsive and repugnant idea, right? Um, that is just one people haven't been able to get over. Thank you. Um, this may not be your lens, um, but I'm probably going to okay. be a little bit, not so much out of your comfort zone as far as time, but a lot of your images um, at the beginning and end yeah. were of women. Mm -hmm. um, and but in between there was a lot of male uh, interaction <laughs> yeah. and engagement um, and so I'm just wondering the uh, role of gender in yeah. in, in the uh, in, within the time frames that you specified yeah yeah I, I originally had like some um, it's so hard to like figure out when you're like trying to condense all this into like you know you're like okay you have like five minutes tell this whole story right. so there were there were a couple of like excerpts from um, Mariah Stewart that I wanted to include. You know, one of the I will say one of the things that has been challenging about this project is that it is a very um, 
foreign policy driven <laughs> research project. And so to find black people, period, involved in conversations about 19th century foreign policy has been a challenge on its own. But then also to try to find women's voices in that um, has been that, more that much more challenging. Um, but what has, there have been a couple of places where I feel like I have been able to insert women into that um, conversation. One is that there are a few examples, and Mariah Stewart is one of them. Um, who over the course of the 19th century actually did speak publicly um, about Haitian independence and Haitian sovereignty. Um, and she actually at one point kind of in this one, it's a very small section of this one speech, but she throws down pretty like significantly um, kind of calling the US government to task for its unwillingness to recognize um, Haitian sovereignty. And interestingly, she does it at a time when the topic of Haitian sovereignty was not actually as popular. Um, among the black leadership, the black male leadership more generally. So I think it was sort of particularly courageous that she chose to do that um, at the time. The other thing that has been really interesting is that I was aware for a long time that these petitions that I mentioned only kind of quickly in passing, these petitions that black and white abolitionists sent to um, Congress during, really between the period of like 1837 and 1843. Um, they send hundreds and hundreds of petitions to Congress demanding Haitian recognition. I knew those petitions existed. And you know, you always have that one thing in your research, like, okay, I'm gonna get to that, but I gotta do this other thing first. And so I finally got to the National Archives and got to look at these um, petitions. And I mean, the names of the people that are on this, like all of a sudden you're holding this thing, it's like, wait, is that Frederick Douglass sitting next to William Lloyd Garrison? You know what I mean? It's like. Um, but what I was really sort of shocked and impressed by is the fact that the volume, and I'm still actually trying to go through all like 300 and whatever of the 380 of these petitions and count up who exactly is what, because <laughs> there's tens of thousands of signatures on these petitions. But you know, my sort of rough estimate right now is probably close to 70% of the signatories on these petitions are women. And to me, that actually has the, I mean, I think it has the potential to do a lot of things. But I think one of them is that it has kind of the potential to turn on its head the way we tell the story of the abolitionist movement, you know? Um, because it is recognizable people like Sarah Parker Raymond, right, um, who signed the petitions. But it's also just these like everyday black and white women who are just sort of foot soldiers of the movement, right? Whose names aren't necessarily leaping off the paper, you know? Like, oh, there's, you know, Frederick Douglass or whatever. But the volume of women, and there's a couple of really interesting articles, like in the anti-slavery newspapers, where they're calling in particular on women to circulate these petitions, you know, kind of saying, every meeting that you have, every opportunity that you have, every moment, go to the streets and knock on doors and, you know, circulate these petitions. And it's just thousands and thousands of women who are circulating these petitions. And... I think that not only I think is that important in its own right, but I also think that it can allow us to change the story of how we tell the history of the abolitionist movement, right? Because the way that we tend to tell the history of the abolitionist movement relative to the women's rights movement is, well, you know, the male abolitionists wouldn't let the women say anything, and so, you know, they go off and start their own thing. But I think the reality is, is that the women were doing so much. I think it's actually the other way around. Like, they're dragging the men along with them. And they're like, you know what, y'all are being like slow and we're doing all this stuff. Like, we're just about to take this thing over. You know what I mean? So I think that actually looking at 
what women are doing and how they're doing it, I think it's actually, I mean, it certainly influences the very specific story that I'm telling, but I think it actually has the potential to kind of retell the story <laughs> more broadly of what was actually going on in the abolitionist and women's rights movements. We've got time for one more question. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, uh, I worked on uh, democracy in Asia, so I loved your talk. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I was, I worked on Laos, which was a French colony, and uh, gained independence after World War II, and uh, tried to protect its independence by establishing a democracy. So yeah. I was just wondering if you could speak to, uh, you know, democracy in the non-Western world and uh, the non-white world as well, yeah. and the trouble of trying to get that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, thank you for the question. Um, you know, I think it is a really interesting thing. Obviously, I didn't get it. There's so many things I, it, it's always that torturous thing when you're like talking about something you're really excited about and you're trying to figure out like what, I have to cut these things out. But, um, you know, one of the things that I didn't really get a chance to talk much about is that process of kind of transition that happens immediately after the revolution, right? When there's kind of a series of, of different leaders. And I think there is this process where they're kind of struggling to figure out what kind of a nation are we actually trying to create, right? And after Dessalines is assassinated, um, the country kind of splits into two regions, the North and the South, and the North is ruled by a monarchy, right? Henry Christophe crowns himself king, and he means that. Like, he's really dedicated to the idea of a monarchy, right? And Alexander Petion in the South is creating um, a what we would think of as sort of a more democratic republic. And I think that's actually about something. Like that's that's about an inherent tension, right? That's happening among these newly emancipated people about what form of a government they actually think is best <laughs> um, to sort of make that transition out of um, revolution. And of course, you know, after additional sort of conflicts and tensions, it ultimately result, results in Boyer um, becoming the leader, and he follows in Petion's footsteps of. Um, establishing a republic. But I, I think Frederick Douglass is actually right when he says, you know, Haiti tries for all this time to establish itself as a republic, but it doesn't do them any good relative to foreign policy. <laughs> you know what I mean? The question of whether it's best for the country is a different question. But the issue of whether it helps them in terms of their foreign relations, it helps them not, right? Because none of the other, you know, republics that have gained their independence through revolution and are all attached to these you know, democratic ideals, none of them are willing to deal with Haiti except to take money from them, you know, in the trade. So um, I think it is, it is an interesting question, right? And it's not surprising, therefore, that at a certain point, Faustin's thing is going to be like, what's the point, <laughs> right? Because we actually might get more support from European monarchies, right, that are still in place. <laughs> Um, by creating a monarchy than by having a republic. None of these other, you know, so-called free Western nations are interested in us. So, I mean, it is kind of an interesting tension, right, between their ideal commitment to establishing a republic, but then how they're still kind of treated, right, and perceived by the rest of the world. Uh, please join me in thanking you.
They see us on the streets and we beat, but I kind of class and got my people sleep, man. They sleep, huh? They pray upon the weak, trying to fold us. But leadership a full-time job, they can't hold us. And we've been going hard for a minute, but it's only the beginning. Man, the scriptures gonna hold me down. Whitewash, now we only serve a white guy. Nice try, but your plans gonna backfire. Black matter gonna rule the world, I'm God's child. Black matter gonna fix it all when he cracked the sky. Black matter gonna turn us up, we kings now. Black matter gonna overpower your black Yeah. Hey, put the clock on 12, cause it's our time. I told her we in hell and they thought marijuana. We rock the streets like it's designer, planting seeds like gardens. We paving ways up in the streets like it's the night. I was past me the match, I set the fire. Set fire to the spot with the word of God. Pass us, you better turn around, call sons of God, nose going down. Sad at the way they did Aragon. Mad at how they did Brianna. George Floyd had knees on him. Y'all think we're supposed to make peace with him? Uh, what's the solution, man? I know you wanna march, but the marching only temporary. We've been oppressed for too long, my people getting weary. That's why we tell them repent, cause we was Chosen, not supposed to live like other nations. They see us on the streets and we beat, but I kind of class and got my people sleep. Man, they sleep, huh? They pray upon the weak, trying to fold us. But leadership a full-time job, they can't hold us. And we've been going hard for a minute, but it's only the beginning. Man, the scriptures gonna hold me down. Whitewash, now we only serve a white guy. Nice try, but your plans gonna backfire. Black matter gonna rule the world, I'm God's child. Black matter gonna fix it all when he cracked the sky. Black matter gon' turn us up, we kings now. Black matter gon' open yeah. your black ass. How I'm supposed to be blessed while catching knees to the neck. By any means, I protect this side of mine, this pride of mine. I try to calm him down, but he ain't trying. Black man was made from black sand. King of the earth, but lost your way by chasing your sin. Love for my people, but I won't sit around and pretend. Like we ain't got work to do. Like you ain't got work in you. Like you ain't supposed to do what you haven't birthed to do. Like you ain't got purpose to. That's why we hit the block. No Drake, but this is non-stop. We need protection from cops that keep our fists locked. Knowing we box, but they don't want us to fight back. Knowing we got children, but now scream we black. They see us on the streets and we deep, but I kind of class and got my people sleep. Man, they sleep, huh? They pray upon the weak, trying to fold us. But leadership a full-time job, they can't hold us. And we've been going hard for a minute, but it's only the beginning. Man, the scriptures gonna hold me down. Whitewash, now we only serve a white guy. Nice try, but your plans gonna backfire. Black matter gonna rule the world, I'm God's child. Black matter gonna fix it all when he cracked the sky. Black matter gonna turn so we kings now. Black matter gonna overpower your black eye. say something. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. A lot of times, our people don't like to connect the dots. You could say you're a Muslim all day. Don't nobody give a damn about that. You could say you are of the Kemetic community. Don't nobody give a damn about that either. You could say you are Egyptologists. Don't nobody give a daggone. You can say you're a Christian. Give me that. You can say you're a Rastafari. Don't nobody care. But the second you say you're an Israelite, the true Hebrews now all hell breaks loose. 
because that's the problem. You gotta connect. What is the connection between Deshaun Jackson and Nick Cannon? What did they say that got them in hot water? It ain't that the white man was a savage. That mm, it ain't that we are the originators of all things. Mm, that's that bull crap. That's jailhouse talk. It's why them both saying we are the true heroes. We are the children of Israel. Now they catch hell. You better, Negroes, you better learn to connect the dots. It ain't no problem. All of the stupid things you're in, there's no problem. You can say it to your blue in the face. But the second you talk about the Bible and that we're the people of the book, now, you, now there's problems. Now there's problems. This is dedicated to the Israelites across the world who don't know who you are. Let's talk about these Israelite habits, you dig? Israelite challenge. Black y'all, then I'm black bald, bliggity black, blackity black, stack tall. Dead Mike and Axe Saul had that fall. They lack tact and facts, but packed gall. You sin like adults in a few things. Food screws and who's woo, Jew truth stings. Bootstraps use two new shoestrings to troop through all the hoops that your roof brings. Hopes road ain't with yellow bricks, nor fellowships with hoes, scarecrows, nor totos. Vipers, vice types, liars, price bribers, lions, striped tigers, Zions like Niger. Real dark, sharp sharks ain't so smart. Steel sparks, tin parts, mark no heart. Written stanzas he supplanted, showed the soul wrong. We're not in Kansas anymore, we wanna go home. The forefront. Stolen across the ocean is potent that we was golden. We chosen, we people motion. Awoken, no need of folges. Orthopedic, the bones is awoken. We not in Kansas, we not in Kansas. Life is bananas. These cops rocking blue pajamas. You throw your hands up to cancer, still in their mind. They body slam us. God's waking up and these heathen can't stand it. Four chapters a day, keep the heathens away. Apocalypse, revelation, we snapping a day. Like Thanos and snapbacks, and we taking this rap back. No crackers, no flapjacks, no Becky, no ginger snaps. Secrets of wisdom twofold, we pure it in gold. Not by Power of might, but the Lord is my sword. We go across the world, let the see in the stores to tell him who you are. You the chosen people, dog. Black excellence, black habits, this black medicine. Yeah, Everything black God, black king, black Christ. Everything black black God, black king, black Christ. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah. Black God, Black King, Black Christ Black God, Black King, Black Christ These some perilous times What y'all don't feel the vibes? I want it black on black Just minus the crimes We teaching the people Telling those who are sick Your conditions aren't fine We are called to hold the line Don't know your own worth Hating one another, that's worth When we started from the bottom Really come from the dirt God said we're a holy people, was just me separated. The majority like the sand is heathens, yeah, they hate it. 
giving them living water They spirits rejuvenating All these other books with the Bible You could never made it The scriptures talk about all facts Like black angels No shape but these liars are obtuse The triangles The gene, the 12 born with it Hebrew excellence Don't matter what it is Natural talent is so effortless Those in the spirit of God Will only understand I'm leaning on the lawn Like bikes with a kickstand Mahala Black Black King, Black Christ. Black God, Black King, Black Christ. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Black God, Black King, Black Christ. Black God, Black King, Black Christ. such a problem to speak the truth it became a problem for us because of the propaganda machine but it's more of a problem for them they've taken our birthright they, they don't want us to be them they don't want us to be us mm. Mm. they don't want you wrapping your head right right you understand even though we are the true hebrews exactly so we can't even tell the truth now not on record mm. not on television shows if that's truly our birthright there's no hate involved. It's not. How did this message get so misconstrued? When we, we came back to claim it. If you steal my bicycle when we were six years old, and you riding around the hood with my bike, <laughs> right. and now I'm 12, and I understand. I want my bike back. I want my bike back, man. But they're both influenced by the Hebrew Israelites. I'm an Israelite. Don't call me black no more. That word is only a color. It ain't facts no more. I don't wear crosses no more, y'all sure was coming back I ain't scared of losses no more, I see life in that Hey, hey, I'm an Israelite, my diamonds is real Kendrick's cousin Carl Duckworth, known in the Hebrew Israelite community as Carney Ben Israel Is heard discussing that same chapter Kendrick was supposedly blown away by this verse during study sessions with his cousin Duckworth However, Lamar is not a member of the group. Meanwhile, Kodak Black met an Israelite teacher during his last stint in prison. After his release, Black seemingly declared his membership in the organization in an Instagram post donning the Jewish star of David. Feeling like I'm kuta kente, cause we going through slavery still. I can't lie, I'm hashtag Israel, hashtag 12 tribes of Israel. Black and Lamar aren't the first rappers to be down with the Israelites. In 1998, Killer Priest shouted them out on his song, One Step. Early natives related to the thrones of David Captured by some patriots and thrown on slave ships And a Hebrew Israelite joined Dougie Fresh in his 1988 music video Keep Rising to the Top Send out his hand to me and ask me Would I rock the microphone? I just gave him a pound and I said shalom 
And remember Chingy? That has all changed. He's down with the Israelites too. And in 2013, he made it known with King Judah. In the kitchen, cooking up, Yo. trying to bake a pie. Yo. I'm reading about my past deception, Yo. trying to cremate a lie. Yeah. Guess I should talk about yeah. bottles, girls, the hood, and guns. Yeah. I've gotten sicker that you son of sin. I'm God. Excuse my language, but that's I mean it like that. Like, we don't want no answers. We want change. We want to be treated like we're supposed to be treated, but. Because now I've educated myself and I've understood, I understand who I am, biblically, like spiritually, the true Israelite, I'm not sure if change is ever going to come on that end. So now my thing is I'm pleading that change will come amongst With us, us amongst yeah. God's chosen one. I had somebody come up on my page the other day and was like, and I never read my comments, but since all this, so I saw the person say, you know, we are all God's children. And yeah, we are. But he has his 12 tribe, his chosen one. And I know who I am. And that's what I was talking about. And so in order to know what I was talking about, you got to study that to show that show that stuff. You got to study. We got to get in the book. We got it. We cannot depend on the law of the land. We cannot depend on the government. Excuse me. We cannot depend on certain things. We got to depend on the book. What's the book? That's the word. That's the Bible. That's my little two cents. And I was like, yo, if we linked up and we stood powerful and strong and got in our book and abided by our father's laws, not the laws of the world, like man, our father's laws, then I've been in. Talk about Jews. Mm. People, you gotta realize the first Jews were black. Jews. Yes. Not Jews. 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 The Jews. Yeah. The Jews. Jews were black. Right. Wow. And, and so, and a lot of, and it's, it's so crazy right now. I be thinking about. Um, and, and, and we original man and woman anyway. That part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That part. Yeah. And when you do your real true research about the Hebrews and the Jews and the Israelites and all that, you find out that they look a lot like us sitting in this room right now. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe somebody stole uh, some of the Jewish religion. Anyway, um, let me shut up. Let's <laughs> talk about it. We we can talk about the twelve tribes of Israel, who was the chosen people. Let's talk. Let's talk about it. We can talk about the original man. We can talk, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Our family out there. Already, I was just wanted to talk, talk real scripture, man. We, we, we really chosen out here. Let's go. That's talk, talk to me. Talk to the people. Talk to me. Oh, okay, okay, man. This, this, this go deep. It's deeper. It's deeper than, than Black Lives Matter. It's deeper than, Mar than marching. It's real scripture. We chosen from, from Puerto Rico to DR to, to, to America to the Bahamas. The boat, the boat didn't just stop in America. The boat went everywhere. Absolutely, it was different stops. It was different stops the, for sure. The scriptures is real. Deuteronomy twenty-eight, and if don't and if don't nobody know whoever watching the twelve chosen tribes, that's who we are. The scriptures. If you ain't never read the scripture in your life, I know they told you. I know they told you the other people wrote the book or wrote the or wrote the Bible was translated. But King James is one of us. We all chosen. It's twelve hundred. It's one hundred forty-four elite. Talk to, talk to him. Talk to him. Talk to him. We all gotta wake up. We all gotta wake up. And, 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 and if, if, if who who that have an ear, let them hear. That's what it say. Who that ever ear have an ear, let them hear. We all we we chosen people. We gotta wake up. The ignorance, the ignorance, everything that go on 
in this world, it come out the strength of us. We broke the first covenant, our people did. But we also got to be, be the people that bring it back and bring it back together. So what you want people to know? What you want people to know from this? I, I, I want everybody to know that, that it is more, it's more than 10 commandments. It's 160 laws that we got to keep as a people. Eat mm. right, treat your brother right. Mm, talk to your brother right. And, and you fight the enemy with how the enemy fights you. Uh. The, 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 the book is our book. The, the King James Version Bible is, is our history. 1,000%. Talk to us. Talk to us. I love it. Keep going. Keep going. Keep Dominican, going. Dominican, Puerto Rican, whether you, whether you Colombian, whether it, the, the meat shall inherit the earth. Let's the go. Talk to him. Talk to him. Go inherit the earth. Talk to him. And it ain't over. This, this, this ain't over. It, this, this little pandemic, the killers, it been happening. Hey, listen it's here, man. Listen here, man. Happening. We would listen we, here. We Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I don't want to cut you off, but you, you, you spitting true knowledge right now. And a lot right. of people don't want. A lot of people don't want to hear this type of shit right here. Right. But that's why these are the conversations. I'm, I'm, I'm actually excited to talk to you right now. At the end of the I day, you, I don't know I you. I don't know you. I don't know you from Adam to Eve. I chose you out of a, out of a random seventeen hundred people. At the end of the day. But what I'm going to say, what I'm going to say is a lot of people don't want to have those type of conversations. And those are the conversations we need to have. Again, I said it on my, I said it on my last, on my last week that we all won. Dominicans, Jamaicans, Haitians, you know, right. Puerto Ricans, we all won. It was just right. a different stop that we had on the boat. My stop and my people's stop was in Puerto Rico. Somebody right. else's stop was in the DR. Somebody else's stop was in Jamaica. At the end of the day, we don't want to have these conversations. This is, the, this is the curriculum that needs to be in the school system. You know why they don't want to hear it? Because they uncomfortable talking Fact. about it. Fact. At the That's end of the day. They gave us the school system. They gave us the school system. Your parents go to jail if you don't go to school up until 17. You can get truancy. They, oh, gave, oh. Us the school, they gave us the school system so they can program us, so they can program us as a young child because when you a cat, when you a child, you go to school at K5. Absolutely. K5. They want to, they, they look, they put us on, listen, they got television and television at the end of the day. Right. They don't want to get, to, they don't want to get to all of that. Let's go. They don't want to talk, but I'm here to talk, bro. I got, I got three little girls. I got three little girls and I can't let them fall victim. I got, and we got to walk right. We got to show, because Israel, we Israel, it's a circle, man. It's, it's one cycle circle. Of life. It's called, it's called a cipher in my lessons. It's called right. a cipher. <laughs> I got people from up top, from Yonkers, they Dominican. I got, they family think we look like people that look like, that's how I know the boat, the boat ain't do nothing but stop in different places. Listen. Every, every, everybody benefited off slavery. It's a systematic, it's a systematic prison at the end of the day. We right. already know what it right. is. It's 360 degrees, 120 right. of knowledge, 120 of, of understanding, 120 of wisdom, which equal the whole right. I don't really want to get, I don't want to get into all, we got to wake up. Scripts say his chosen people perish from a lack of knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. A book and read and, and don't be afraid to speak to different people and talk because you can catch a vibe. If the vibe ain't good, then leave it alone. Absolutely. But, I wake up, I wake up every I wake up every day, turn my TV on, and I see I'm I'm looking for justice at the end of the day. Guess what I see? What? I see just us at the end of the day. That's, That's what right. I see. Hey, this is this is the mindset that they don't they don't want to hear this type of talk. You no, know what no, no. I tell people all the time, and I heard you say, you said somebody said you need to go ahead and get a ship, and you said if it ain't easy, you a real one. That's why you ain't got one, baby. 
That's why you ain't got one using a real one. You know, know why? Because you because my 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 education goes way back. My education man, goes back six. You know, it's 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 we talk of sixteen, nineteen. We talking about way. We talking about shit that we really need to. Fact. We need. Right. We really need to be educated on, and we can't. My right. thing is, we can't have these type of conversations because it's uncomfortable. But also, we gotta be able to. We gotta want to go back to that time. We can't go right. back to the time that they tell us to go back to. At the end of the day, right. we gotta go back right. to that time. At you know, we we gotta go back. And I, I I'm right. honestly, it's a, it's it's. I'm a, I'm gonna be I'm gonna keep it a buck with you, bro. It's 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 real talking to somebody who's able to have this enlightening conversation, who understand what we're talking about. I'm just here trying to educate the people at the end of the day. If you really want to get into it, we get into it. Build this build at the end of the day. So we're going to talk that talk, and we're going to continue to build and do what we got to do. So for everybody... Why now? Well, it could be because of the bleakness of our present time. Police brutality, an unstable political system, and global warming are pushing many to seek solace in alternative movements. The Israelites are apolitical and don't believe activism will solve their problems. The only way, they believe, is to follow God and return to their Hebrew heritage. And this is all something that Kendrick Lamar has been keenly aware of. I feel like it ain't no tomorrow. Fuck the world. The world is ending. I'm done pretending. And fuck you if you get offended. Yeah. We are the flock. 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 Ezekiel 34. We are the flock. Deep asleep, our people slumber. Prophets bring the thunder, won't skip a beat. Like a drummer, wish a demon would. They keep the lumber. The number 144, getting busy. Israel got the antidote. Make a sinner dizzy with the scripts they quote. Pass the silly, he telling jokes. Get up off the rope, start fighting back. Boots on the ground, in shot rack. In the city of town, teaching Christ is black. They losing sleep, insomniac. Wake up, alarm went off. Prophets of God, opposite of soft. All these haters sit around and scoff. Work of the Lord, never be put on pause Be down for the cause if you wanna go home Put down your sins, tell them leave you alone Tie your loose ends and you can see the throne Then you reap, seize you sown And we own, we on the rise My brothers, God's in disguise My sisters, daughters and kings We taking over, they know what it mean It's time for the rise It's time for the rise, you don't believe me, just open your eyes Gathering up all the flocks, see growing That water's flowing Part of the drip, it's part of the blessing I'm good, no stressing. God got me, I'm riding forever. Forever and ever. You yeah. know the plan, got to endure. Boots on the ground, that gospel on tour. Kicking it raw, I know it get hard. They hit when you right, I'm still in the light. Shout out the leadership, doing it right. All of my haters, I tell them goodnight. I type up a post, I hold up the post. I'm down with the work, we doing the most. I'm seeing the pain, I'm plotting the glory. Pray I do it right, so Christ come back for me. And my bros, hope they coming on with it. All of the saints, you know we got to get it. Growing strong as the clock ticking close. See the truth on approach. Been too long, we've been down at the bottom. Every hood done turned into Gotham. Ain't no Batman, but bet they be robbing and killing and stealing and getting lit. 
So we out in the ghettos and towns and cities to wake up the remnant. This the life of an Israelite. Keep the laws and the faith of Christ. You can live or die twice. Repent or die, better get your life. It's time for the rise. You don't believe me? Just open your eyes. Gathering up all the flocks, he growing. That water's flowing, part of the drip. It's part of the blessing. I'm good, no stressing. God got me. I'm riding forever, forever and ever. Yeah. Look good, smell good, be good at the Forefront Express, or you'll be able to get exclusive. Sense of oil-based fragrances available to men and women. Join us at our website. Join our website on www.theforefrontexpress.com. Thank you for listening to the Forefront Radio. We now have a cash app. The link is in the description of the page here on anchor.fm, also on Spotify. We appreciate you listening in. We do have a few features that we are including now. We are selling a few products such as watches, perfumes, colognes, and other uh, products will be available for our Israelite community, as well as the general community of the population. We have a Facebook page. Just type in The Forefront Media, and you'll be able to get updates of of, uh, various shows that we drop when they do drop. Um, please do share this show if you like the show, and we do hope that you do love this show. And uh, tune in for more uh, episodes once we have them available. Thank you for listening to The Forefront. I'm your host, Afiel Levi Israel.